Welcome everyone to another episode of Governed by God, a discussion of law, civics, and government from a biblical perspective. My name is Eric Leupold, and I appreciate you joining me today. I request that you, if you like the show, please uh, share the show, uh, give the show thumbs up, stars, whatever the case may be. All the uh, reviews and the stars help uh, to get the show out there on all the search engines. Um, you can find me as well at GBG Podcast. If you go to Facebook, uh, please go to my page there. Share the episodes with friends. Uh, you can also send any questions you have. I do take questions uh, and try to uh, address them in the episode. Uh, so please feel free to email me at the GBG Podcast at gmail.com. And of course, if you go to uh, Patreon and look for Governed by God, you can support me there and I would greatly appreciate it. Okay. So, let's get into today's episode. Last, last, uh, last episode, about two weeks ago, we looked at the very basic foundation of the four types of government that God has instituted in the world. Self-government, family government, church government, and the civil government. Now, what I want to do in this episode is kind of lay the foundation for government and law. So, where... How do they relate to one another? Are they the exact same thing? Um, well, first of all, uh, government requires law. There's no government that can function without some sort of law or moral standard, or else it wouldn't be a government. So, for an example, if you wanted to govern yourself, um, you can't do that unless you know how you're supposed to behave. If you um, are parents, if you're a parent and want to govern your family, govern your children, well, you can't do that without rules of some sort. Uh, if you're in the church, in church leadership, there is no, you, there's no discipline if there's no standards. If there's nothing to hold people accountable to, then there's no rules, right? And then lastly, of course, the civil government can't do anything unless there's some kind of law uh, by which to measure that this person has obeyed or this person has disobeyed and therefore needs to be punished. Now, why do I why do I bring that up? Because a lot of Christians have uh, difficulty wrestling with God's law and how it applies to us today as believers, whether we're just individual Christians, whether we're parents, whether we're in government, or in church leadership. So, and I know Christians um, that hold to a wide variety of opinions regarding uh, what are good laws, what are bad laws, how government should function, how family should function. Um, and now perhaps, uh, perhaps there's certainly some room for flexibility. Uh, I believe there are some things where God gives us freedom and uh, variety, but I do see a lot of extremes. I see, uh, I can see Christians on, on complete opposite sides of the spectrum, and they would both call themselves Bible-believing Christians. So, uh, what's the problem with that? Well, the thing is, I fear, I can't prove this, of course, but I fear that as Christians, we have become a bit more illiterate regarding God's law. And how to apply it. Maybe this is because we don't care 
about God's law or we misunderstand some of the passages that say we're not under law, under grace, uh, taking that out of context and misapplying it and basically saying, well, Christians can just do whatever they want or they just go by their feelings, you know, the Holy Spirit guides me, uh, which just does have some truth to it, but there's it's more there's more to it than that. Um, and I think, uh, just quite simply, we are very biblically illiterate, um, and I would say perhaps with regards to God's law, very illiterate. So that's what I want to talk about today. And I might not get through all of it on today's episode, and we'll just carry it over to uh, the next episode. But I just want to start out with the question, why should we care about God's law? I mean, why does it even matter, right? Why are we even talking about this? Well, first of all, we should care because Scripture Scripture says so. Uh, we should care because all of Scripture, which contains God's law, is useful for teaching. So, if you go to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, it says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So, that's a pretty long list of things there for reproof, for teaching. Okay, so that covers some parental aspects and church aspects. Reproof would be kind of uh, correcting, and it also says for correction. So if someone's in error, you can correct them uh, with regards to what God's law says, what God's word says. You can correct perhaps wrong behavior, wrong words, or even wrong beliefs. But then it says for training in righteousness. Now, that's interesting because... You know, righteousness, training in righteousness might rub some people the wrong way because they might argue, well, we get our righteousness from Christ. So how comes we need to be trained in righteousness? And I'm going to get to that shortly. But I think the important thing to keep in mind here is that God's word is sufficient to do all of those things. And when Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, the New Testament hasn't been completed yet. And he encourages Timothy in just a few verses prior to this. He says in verse 14, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So Paul there is talking about the Greek Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, which Timothy and you know many of the New Testament apostles would have been very familiar with since Greek was the universal language and the uh, Hebrew Bible had been translated into Greek. So, now the question is, if the scripture is useful for training in righteousness, what is righteousness? Well, if we ask what that is, what it looks like, we only have to look to Christ as an example. Because he fulfills God's law perfectly, and he obeys the Father without fail. 
So, in a way, in a way, righteousness is whatever God says that it is. That he he defines what is and is not righteous. For example, and this is just one uh, part of Scripture that talks about it. But in Psalm eighty nine, the psalmist says, referring to God, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. So, the foundation of God's throne includes righteousness and justice. And it's very much tied to holiness. They're all very much related. Isaiah, when he sees God and the, and the, and the angels cry out, God is holy, holy, holy. The, the three times holy God. And because he's holy... He is altogether righteous. He's perfect, okay, without blemish, without error. Um, he sets the standard for that which is good. The standard for righteousness is established by God. God is perfect, and this is key, God demands perfection. Now, this might unsettle some people, but this is exactly what Jesus even teaches. In Matthew 5.48, he says, you, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, that's in the context of <clears throat> loving your enemies, which is a hard teaching and probably one of the hardest ones because he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. There is nothing, probably nothing, so hard as that in the world uh, than to love the people that hate you. Um, but he says, be perfect, just as your Heavenly Father is perfect, particularly in this uh, behavior of loving your enemies. Now, God's law is a reflection of His character, nature, and holiness. God, God is righteous, God is holy, and therefore what, what He requires reflects that. Okay, now... Humans, being made in the image of God, Genesis chapter 1, we are stewards of what God has given us. Okay, Genesis chapter 2, Adam placed in the garden, told to tend it, guard it, keep it, uh, uh, multiply, be fruitful, and to uh, subdue the earth and take dominion over it. Um, God designed us to function a certain way in this world. Kind of like certain tools are designed to function. I mean, you you know that certain parts of machines or, or vehicles are designed for a specific purpose. And if you use the tool for a different purpose, you're very likely to break the tool and to fail to accomplish the job. You need the right tool for the job. And the tool is designed to do a certain thing. Well, it's no different with humans. We are designed by God to function a certain way. As his image bearers, that's what we're supposed to be doing. Um, and if we're not functioning that way, bad things happen. Both as individuals, bad things happen in our own lives. And as a group of people, as a nation or as a corporate body. Um and of course, the entrance of sin into the world made things quite difficult for us. But that being said, we are still 
image bearers of God. And humans are still to be communal. It's not good for us to be alone. Okay? We're still to be creative. We cultivate and we build. And we're supposed to be custodial. We're to keep and to maintain. Now, all these things that we were designed to do are a reflection of God's nature. He's communal in a sense, obviously. He's got the one God in three persons, the Trinity. There's eternal community and love within God. He's creative. He creates the world out of nothing and into nothing, building it. He's also custodial. He's keeping it. He's maintaining it and sustaining it by the word of his power. And as Jesus says, you know, even today my Father is working and I am working. Even there, there's no rest for God in that sense as he sustains the world and keeps it functioning. So, being image bearers of God, we should be doing the things that God does analogous to him. We are to be like him in these things. We should also care about God's law because we care about sin. Sin is transgression. It's a missing the mark, uh, a violating God's holy standard. And um, it, it's said very nicely by, by John in 1 John chapter 3. He says that uh, sin is lawless, lawlessness. So we go to 1 John 3 verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Now, there's probably no more of a succinct definition of sin that I can find in the New Testament, uh, or maybe even in the whole Bible, that defines sin so simply and so perfectly. Sin is lawlessness. Now, because sin violates God's law, therefore it is lawlessness. To be lawless is to be without law, to go against law, to be in rebellion to law. And lawlessness can only be defined if you actually are violating some kind of law. And in this case, it's God's. Now, you know, so rebellion is defiance against the king and his decrees. So, with regards to us caring about sin... We, it's important for us to see the connection between love and obedience, hatred and rebellion. I mean, if we love God, we will obey him. Uh, John chapter 14 uh, quotes Jesus as talking about this. When Jesus uh, is talking to his disciples, he says in verse uh, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, right? So, and he, and he continues to go on. He talks with the Holy Spirit. In verse 21, he says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And then in verse 23, he says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. And in verse 24, he says it again. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So, lest anybody try to uh, pit Jesus' words against the Father's words. Jesus makes it very clear that they're the same words. The word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So the same Father 
who gave in the Old Testament law is the same Father who Jesus is referring to, and Jesus is speaking the Father's words. So, again, if we love God, we will obey him. And um, John also, in his letter, First uh, John chapter 2, says the same thing. He says, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, uh, But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world, the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him, talking about Christ, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now that's that's interesting. How did Jesus walk? In obedience to the law, in obedience to his Father. So it's important that we keep that in mind because if we love God, we will be quick to obey him and not to abandon his holy standards and his righteous decrees for us. Now even though I say that the law is important. I know that people will tend, some people will tend to get a little concerned about that, maybe even worrying that I'm suggesting that um, we are saved by our behavior or by our law keeping or by our works. And I want to spend some time now uh, looking at the three uses of the laws of the law. And I'm not making this up. Um, it's just the way that Christians have historically understood how God's law continues to function in the lives of Christians. Now, the first thing I want to point out is that the law cannot save us. Okay, I can't, I can't hit that nail on the head hard enough. Uh, the law is not capable of saving sinners. Adam ruined it for everybody. In Romans chapter 5, we see in verse 18, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Okay. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So, the, the thing that we see here is the covenantal aspect of, of, of what Adam did. When Adam sinned, we sinned. When he died, we died. He represented us. He declared war against God. And as a result, we are at war with God. Uh, it's not too different than uh, even some examples today. I mean, we tend to think of ourselves as individuals in the United States. But if the president of Congress were to go to war, whether you voted for any of them or not, or didn't even vote at all, 
If you are a citizen of the United States, you are at war. We are at war uh, there. And we speak like this all the time, especially when we talk about sports. Um, when, when our team is doing well, well, we will often talk in as if we're part of the team, like we did well, or we won today, or we were terrible, you know, if we lost. Um, so we join ourselves to the team, our favorite team, even though we may never have talked to a player, never talked to a coach, never um, went on the field, never worked for the team, never was part of the team. We absolutely have no connection to the team except our own personal decision to unite ourselves to them in some in some weird way, right? People would say it's weird, but I think it's ultimately spiritual in some sense. But we as humans are communal and we are still covenantal. Okay, we still speak in that way. Now, um, another analogy that I found to be useful, um, just looking at stories like in The Lord of the Rings. Um, I remember when I was reading the book about Isildur and how he found the ring, or he acquired it, I should say, after he cut the ring from the Dark Lord's hand. He said, uh, he said this with, with regards to the ring of power. It shall be an heirloom of my kingdom. All those who follow in my bloodline shall be bound to its fate, for I will risk no hurt to the ring. It is precious to me, though I buy it with great pain. So another wonderful example of how this works. Someone like Isildur, he, in a way, covenanted. None of his bloodline had been born, but he joined himself and his entire bloodline to the ring because he wanted it so badly and he he desired to possess it and it was precious to him, which is not too different really if you look at Adam and Eve in the garden as they took the fruit. In a way, they found it to be so precious and so desirable that they were willing to bind the bloodline to it and to its fate, the fate of sin and death. And so long as we are in Adam's bloodline, we are bound to his fate and the heirloom that he gives us, sin and death. It's not wisdom. It's not eternal life that he gives us. He gives us sin and death because that's what he acquired. That's what he purchased. And the cost was his life and righteousness. And so we have none. We have spiritual death, and we have um, guilt. So, righteousness, going back to what that is, requires perfect obedience to the law. Okay, we see this in James chapter 2, where James says, whoever, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. So, you can't divvy up God's law into pieces and say, well, you know, I only murdered, but I kept everything else. Well, that's not how it works. I mean, Adam only ate the forbidden fruit once, and that's it. Well, he may have done everything else right. It doesn't matter. 
I mean, you know, logically it makes sense. If, if someone's on trial and they stand before the judge and they are guilty of murder, and the judge says, okay, you're guilty of murder. Um, this is your punishment. You know, let's say it's uh, life in prison. Maybe it's death. Doesn't matter. And the person says, well, judge, I, I obeyed everything else in my life. I mean, I, I, I followed the speed limit. You know, I even help out my neighbor take, take out her trash. I have never broken any law except I killed that guy in cold blood. But, I mean, come on. Can you give me a break? And the thing is, is that the judge would be a bad judge if he says, all right, well, you can go, you know, or maybe just get like a week in jail, you know, for good behavior, for previous, you know, good works that you did. Even though the the person you murdered is still dead and their family is devastated, um, no, that's not that's not how it works. Um, one mistake, you break the law. You are a lawbreaker if you break any part of the law. Now, now, so um, even if we just ignored the fact that we are sinners by nature, we would still have to be perfect if we wanted the law to save us or if we wanted to earn eternal life by the law. We would have to be perfect like Jesus, okay? But that's not going to happen because we are in Adam. We're born already guilty and we are born sinners who just add even more guilt to our sad situation. So the only option is for us to be born again from a new Adam, from Christ. So the law was never designed to save anyone. I mean, think about that. Like the word salvation, to save someone, implies that someone's in danger. Okay, something's already, something bad has already happened. Well, what are we in danger from? Breaking the law, breaking God's law, God's wrath, right? So uh, it would be weird to say that the law can save you. The instrument of your condemnation will become the instrument of your salvation. Uh, not at all. You saving, you're saving someone who's in trouble. You're in trouble because you did something wrong. You broke God's law. And the law does not change our hearts, which is really where the problem lies. Um, you know, the law just doesn't really replace the, the, the dead heart of man. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 19, um, actually I'll start with uh, verse 18. And this is where the writer of Hebrews is contrasting uh, uh, Melchizedek, well, contrasting Christ with other, um, other priests. And he's basically saying that Jesus is, after the word of Melchizedek, a superior priest. And he says this, it says, For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Um, so it's the law made nothing perfect. It doesn't make anything perfect. And the writer of Hebrews repeats this same idea two chapters later. In chapter 9, verse 14, he says, he's, this is when he's talking about sacrifice of animals. I'll start in verse I'll start in verse 13 here. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, 
how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So the conscience has to be purified and the blood of Christ is the only thing that can do that. Being in Christ, having faith in Christ is what's going to ultimately um, save us. So that's, that's important to keep in mind. So with that said, if the law can't save us, and we, it definitely cannot, it can only condemn, then what use does it serve for us today? And, the, and so here we come to the first use of the law. The first use of the law is it points us to Jesus. It highlights our need and our debt. It increases the trespass, which is what we read in Romans chapter 5. Okay, it just heaps more uh, condemnation against us. You know, we're already guilty, but we do something, and then we, we find out there's a law, we, we see the law, we hear the law, and then we're tempted to break it. You know, they always say laws are meant to be broken, right? Because our natural tendency is to do the exact opposite of what we're commanded not to do. Uh, in Galatians chapter 3, Paul says this in verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So the law points to the solution. The law is a guardian or a schoolmaster. And the purpose of the law's existence was to be the, the guardian or the schoolmaster in order that, what Paul says, we might be justified by faith. So it's very clear. It's not in order that we may be justified by law, but that we may be justified by faith. And violation of that law requires a payment of debt. Okay, um, which, again, our debt against God is is pretty much infinite and always increasing, much like the uh, U.S. national debt, but that's a different uh, topic for another day. But in um, Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul says this, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So the cross paid the debt. So the solution to lawbreaking is Christ. And that's the first purpose of God's law. Uh, grace is something that we do not deserve. It's nothing that we can earn, but it's only what God does. We trust in Christ and are accredited with his righteousness that we don't earn. It is attributed to us. It's outside of us, and he gives it to us. Um, he, Christ, merited life and righteousness. He obeyed the Father perfectly. So he earned, by his work, eternal life for himself and for anyone who is joined to him. Anyone in his, quote-unquote, 
bloodline is bound to his fate, which is glorification and eternal life. So um, it's a beautiful thing. And that's the first, and I would say perhaps, no, I would say it is the most important use of God's law, which almost everyone inherently knows about um, and would agree with. Now, the second use of God's law is a little more controversial because really what it is is how do we as Christians live? So let's say you, you know, the first use of the law, you you hear that you've broken God's law and you look to Christ and now you become a believer. You're saved. You trust in Christ. Okay, now what? How do you live? What does it mean to be a Christian, to be a follower of Christ? to do as he has done, okay? Well, that's where the law, again, comes into play. At this point, the law is no longer an enemy. The law is a guide. The law is a useful tool, okay? And even Paul says in Romans chapter 7 that the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So that's pretty positive. The law is still good. And the law was really never bad. Okay, it did, you know, it certainly condemned us, and that doesn't, that seems bad to us, okay, but the law was never bad because, remember, God's law is a reflection of God's character and his nature and his righteousness and his personality, who he is, okay, is reflected in what he requires of his people. So, the law is never bad, but the people were. The law was weak. It could not change the person. It could not perfect. It could not purify the conscience. It could not change the heart. Only the Spirit can do that. Now, and, and this makes sense that Paul uh, says this because he, he lives that out in his ministries. I'll give just one example. In Acts chapter 24, verse 25, when he's in custody uh, by Governor Felix, okay, he is brought before Governor Felix, and they have uh, a couple discussions, I suppose. Now, here's what happens in Acts 24, verse 25. And as he, Paul, reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. So, you know, Felix is a little uncomfortable here. <clears throat> He's being taught what righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment refers to. And that's Paul, you know, the writer of Romans and Galatians, is saying this to a governor, okay, a Roman governor. And... Um, how could Paul talk about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment without any reference to God's law? He can't. Okay, the standard, when you say, what does righteousness look like? It looks like God's law. What does self-control look like? It also looks like God's law, what God's law says it is. What is judgment? Why is there judgment? Because God's law has been broken. That's why there's judgment. So, um, and... As believers, we should delight in God's law. I mean, Psalm 119 is the longest psalm of all the psalms. 
And if you just slowly read through that psalm, it just is always talking about, blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Okay, blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with all, with their whole heart. You know, just, you know, it can go down and down. Uh, then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. Okay, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my ways, fix my eyes on your ways. Okay, I mean, I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. Like, this is just all throughout Psalm 19. And he would not be saying this if the law and God's commandments were evil. And it wouldn't make sense for God the Father to give this, and then God the Father to speak something completely different through the Son later on. And that's not what Jesus says. Jesus spoke the words that his Father speaks. Now, we as Christians should delight in the law. It's not a burden to us. As Jesus says, his burden is light. Okay? Um, the Pharisees added burdens upon the people. But when Jesus brought things back to their intent, his burden was quite light. And um, later on, to go back to Romans chapter 7, where Paul said the law is holy, righteous, and good, he says in verse 22 of chapter 7, I delight in the law of God, in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So, you know, Paul is talking about a struggle here that all Christians go through, an internal struggle, where the old man, the man of sin, the flesh is striving and wants to be selfish and uh, and do evil. But yet, Paul says, I serve the law of God with my mind. And what is he referring to? It's, it's what God has said in the Old Testament. Because, I mean, he's writing this in the New Testament. It's not complete yet. But we look at that in light of Christ. And I'll get to that later on, but I first want to finish up by looking at the third use of the law, which is another controversial use, or I guess not controversial, but more debated. It's the use of the law to restrain evil in the world, how God keeps people from being as wicked as they could. Even though they're totally depraved, they're spiritually dead, people don't act as evil as they could act quite often. And um, there is evidence of this use of the law uh, throughout the New Testament. So, for example, in Romans chapter 2, uh, Paul says that even the Gentiles who don't have the law of God uh, are still being bound to it. He says in chapter 2, verse 14, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness 
and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Okay, so what Paul is saying there is that the Gentiles are just as guilty as the Jews. Because the beginning of Romans, Paul is condemning everybody. Um, the Jews, well, the, first of all, the Gentiles are bad. They're guilty because even though they don't have the Hebrew scriptures, they have a moral compass. And it's broken. It doesn't always point, it doesn't point north, but it, it's still there. And they have a sense of God's law because this is a leftover of the fact that they are made in God's image and designed by God. And so there's still that, that moral conscience, moral compass. Okay, and so they're guilty. They know they're guilty. And this makes sense. I mean, if you just look back at the nation of Israel, when they entered the, when they entered the promised land, um, the Canaanites and the Amorites, they, they were guilty. They were, they were being judged. They were being condemned. And they never had Scripture. Those Amorites, those Canaanites, they never had it. Um, but they were still held accountable. For their wicked practices, sexual morality, um, child sacrifice, uh, maybe even cannibalism, you know, things like that. So, so the Gentiles are guilty already. The law, the work of the law is upon them. Um, now, additionally, the law is given for the lawless. Now, this is found, again... In Paul's writings, go to First Timothy, chapter one, verses eight through eleven. Uh, this is a pretty key passage for this. Starting in verse eight. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So, what's he saying there? Well, one thing that's key is he says the law is good, first of all. He says, if... If one uses it lawfully, and that goes back to the second use of the law, if you're using it to be saved, you're using it wrong. The tool is being misused, and that was an issue with the Pharisees. But if you're using it as how do we live as Christians, then you're using it rightly. Okay, but he says the law was not given for those who were just, for the righteous. It was given for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and the sinners. And I found it very helpful uh, when Martin Luther, in 1523, uh, talks about this. He wrote in his letter uh, called Secular Authority, To What Extent It Should Be Obeyed. Here's what Luther said. A man would be a fool to make a book of laws and statutes telling an apple tree how to bear apples and not thorns, when it is able by its own nature 
to do this better than man with all his books can define and direct. Just so, by the Spirit and by faith, all Christians are throughout inclined to do well and keep the law much more than anyone can teach them with all the laws and needs so far as they are concerned, no commandments or law. Now, I found that to be a very useful quote because Martin Luther is highlighting exactly what Paul is pointing out here. A Christian does not need a Christian does not need the law to tell him um, what to do in, the, in a certain way. Like, Christians don't need to be told not to murder people. People who are truly changed in their hearts, people who are truly regenerate, who love the Lord and desire Him and seek to obey Him and live as children of God. They are naturally inclined to want to serve God. Now, the law is still useful because we are still living in this sinful world and flesh in which we struggle against a sinful nature, sinful desires. And the law can be our guide. It can help us understand, I want to love my neighbor, right? Well, how do I love my neighbor as a businessman? Well, the God's law can guide you in that, can give you some principles to live by. What about how, as a father? How do I live as a father or as a child? How do I obey my parents as a Christian child? Well, God's law can guide you in what that looks like, okay? But, but Martin Luther is on something very powerful here. The apple tree does not need to be told to bear apples. It naturally does. And, and this is very much in line with what Jesus says, a good tree bears good fruit. You'll know them by their fruit, okay? When people are born again as Christians, they are a new creature, a new creation, a heart of stone is removed, and a heart of flesh is given. And at that point, they bear fruit. They begin to bear fruit. And they love God's law, and they seek to obey it. And theoretically, they don't need to be told, don't do this, don't do that, or you'll be in trouble. Now, so the law is given for the lawless, not only to condemn them, but to restrain them. So... And in a way, the presence of the law itself causes hesitation. Now, I said earlier that oftentimes when we're given a command, there is that temptation, and Paul talks about this, the temptation to violate that. Like, ooh, the law is meant to be broken. I want to break that law. Now, I think that is a natural human response inside our hearts. But I also think, though, the law is restraining. To some degree, it does. Or else there wouldn't be laws, right? Um, to give one example would be, uh, you know, laws against uh, laws against stealing or even uh, with this current pandemic crisis. How about laws about wearing masks or laws about social distancing? I mean, these laws... Laws like that can't really be enforced. Okay, there's not enough police in the world to enforce laws about masking and social distancing and and uh, maintaining a certain percentage of occupancy in your in your restaurant or place of business. But but people, a lot of times, people will comply. 
okay, the law restrains even if it can't necessarily be enforced. Okay, now that's not doesn't last forever, and there are always going to be people out there who are going to kick against the law. But in general, the law has a restraining effect upon people, or at the very least, it causes hesitation because the person at least has to think about how do I not get caught? Okay, if it wasn't a law, getting caught, getting arrested, getting thrown in jail, having my stuff taken from me getting fined, doesn't come into my mind at all, okay? But once it's a law, now I have to stop for a moment and think about how do I get away with it, okay? Or is it worth the risk? So in that sense, there's a natural restraining. At the very least, it's a restraint of time, you know, on the person. And even the most wicked people follow certain rules, it's it's fascinating sometimes because you know as I read history, even the most wicked people, for whatever reason, follow they restrain themselves in certain ways, and I'll just give one example because everyone likes to talk about you know Hitler as being the most evil person on the planet that ever lived, and I don't think he was. He's pretty nasty, very evil, but there are a lot of people who are competing with him on that one. You know, Stalin, Pol Pot, Mao Zedong. You know, there's a lot of people that are runners-up, if he, if not number one for that one. But uh, uh, he's a good example. But consider this. In World War One. so this is, obviously Hitler's not in power then. Hitler's just an infantryman uh, in the German army. But in World War One, the Allies used chemical weapons against each other. Now, you know, this poison gas, mustard gas. And in fact, Hitler had been hit with mustard gas um, and survived. But it permanently, I think he got temporarily blinded and it permanently affected his vocal cords, which um, I think is one of the reasons why his voice was so, it's just the way it was, so raspy and just the way it was when he was giving speeches. But um, for whatever reason, in... World War II, when Hitler's in power, he never, as far as I know, I have not been able to find any instance of him using chemical weapons against soldiers. Now, obviously, he had no problem using chemicals against Jews and other people in the concentration camps, which is obviously pure evil and wicked. But for whatever reason, he never went that far, even when he was losing even when things were bad, when the Soviets were surrounding Berlin, he never employed chemical weapons against the troops in the field. And I don't know why. I mean, maybe it's because of his own personal experience with, with that. Or maybe it's because it would be so destructive, he just couldn't fathom it. Or maybe it was because between the wars, after World War I and before World War II, there was an agreement amongst nations, not to use chemical weapons in the field of battle, although um, it was it was a, always a possibility. So, just some things to consider there that that law has a restraining effect even upon the most evil as people of evil evil of people. Um, so, just to conclude this this section here, I want to say, um, as Christians, we need to not neglect the importance of God's law, particularly in our own lives. 
we are citizens of the kingdom of God. And citizens obey the king. They are united to Christ, and they are slaves of righteousness. And that's pretty strong language, but Paul uses it in Romans chapter 6. Uh, previously, we were, we were slaves to sin. He says in um, verse... Um, verse uh, 12 and 13 and 14 in Romans chapter 6, Let not sin therefore ring in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. So that passage that's often taken out of context to be to be under grace does not mean that you don't that you can live however you want to. You can live like the devil, and there's no standard. Sin has no dominion over you because you're not under law anymore. The condemning power of the law. You're under grace, so therefore go live, uh, present yourselves uh, as slaves of righteousness. He even says that in, in verse eighteen, um, and having been set free from sin, you've become slaves of righteousness. Now, so you were uh, slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So you're either one or the other. You're not, you're not ultimately free. True freedom is freedom from sin, not freedom to sin. Okay, and you're either a slave to sin and, or you're a slave to righteousness. And being a slave to righteousness, by the way, that is freedom. Freedom to obey God's law. Freedom to love God. Freedom to serve Him. Um, Jesus even says in John John chapter 8, um, Whoever sins is a slave to sin. And the Son has come to set men free. And if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Okay? Free to do what? Free to do whatever you want? No. Free to follow Christ. Free to obey God. Free to live a righteous, holy, and godly life. Not by your own power, but by the power of God who lives and works in you to do righteousness and to do good works. So um, I just want to kind of end it on this note here, and hopefully uh, it'll give you something to think about and and encourage you and and maybe kind of push you a little bit to uh, look at God's law and to really consider it, to, to read it, and to, and to live by it, and to learn how to live by it as a Christian. And I'm going to get to that uh, in a future episode. Like, how do we interpret God's law today? How do we apply it? Can we eat bacon? You know, that's probably going to be the number one question. Can I eat bacon-wrapped scallops? The answer is yes, and I will show you why in a future episode. So until then, take care and...